the way that Kamala prosecuted you know, her case, I think she could stand toe-to-toe with Trump any day of the week. Uh, the way that Mayor Pete answered a very sensitive issue where he owned up to saying, look, I just couldn't get it done. I wish I had. I mean, I thought that was so refreshing to see in a politician. There's a number of candidates that were on that stage that I would love to see take on Trump for sure. What happened at the Democratic debates? How did climate fare? Who were the winners and losers? We discuss on this week's Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute and the Leonardo DiCaprio Foundation. I'm Julia Piper, contributing editor at Green Tech Media and a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. And I'm reporting to you today from New Brunswick, Canada. It's uh, the day after Canada Day, so I'm back here with family. And so I have on the line Shane Skelton, our Republican, a partner at consulting firm S2C Pacific and a former energy advisor to Paul Ryan, and Brandon Hurlbut, our Democrat, partner at Boundary Stone Partners and former chief of staff at the Department of Energy under Secretary Stephen Chu. Uh, happy uh, belated Canada Day, guys. Oh, it's my, my favorite holiday. Julie. Hey, Shane. I'm glad, what? <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad you're enjoying it up there. I, on the other hand, am positioning myself. Why do you myself. laugh? We are your number one trading partner and ally. You should have some respect. Say your story. You know, I tend to wonder if you guys just made that up to compete with 4th of July, right? Because it's like, eh, you know, we want something important too. No, it is a legitimate, it's a legitimate historical day and event. We're looking forward to some fireworks this week, but there, there were some fireworks in the Democratic debate last week. Yes. Great segue, Brandon. We're going to dig into the debate today, and that's actually launch right in. 20 Democratic presidential candidates faced off last week in the first debate of the 2020 election. It was a mixed bag, not only for the candidates, but also for the issues. There were some defining moments, like Julian Castro's comments on decriminalizing migration, and when Kamala Harris called out frontrunner Joe Biden on the issue of race, calling his past work with segregationist lawmakers hurtful. Climate change did not get the best showing. A morning consult and Politico poll conducted a few days before the first debates found that roughly three in five Democrats said it was very important for the 2020 contenders to discuss climate change, gun policy, and recent abortion legislation, with climate change topping that list. And yet, climate change actually only saw 15 minutes of airtime over the course of the four hours of debates. Brandon, what do you think? What were your takeaways specifically on how climate was addressed in these first two debate nights? Well, first of all, I'll say one of the, you know, even though we've discussed many times that the polling has been more favorable on climate, uh, where voters are treating it as a priority, particularly on the Democratic side, one of the challenges for climate is often that it takes a backseat to the crisis of the moment. Um, And I think that's what we saw in the debates. I mean, right before the debate started, um, the picture was released of that father and his daughter who died um, trying to cross uh, the river. And uh, many of the abuses of what's happening on the border uh, are coming to light from some of the lawyers doing whistleblowing. Uh, and this is a, a crisis that needs attention. Um, you saw AOC just visited a uh, facility and was told of the human rights abuses that are taking place there. So I can understand why that was a focus You know, at the beginning of the debate. Um, some, of the, some of the good things I, th- I thought that happened were several of the candidates named climate as a top threat. Uh, Warren talked about industrial mobilization, creating you know, 1.2 million manufacturing jobs. Biden called for 500,000 EV chargers. Kamala endorsed the Green New Deal publicly again. Uh, Mayor Pete talked about the rural impacts. 
And the good news is there might be a climate debate after all. After the Sunrise Movement uh, protested at the DNC for three days, it looks like there may be a vote on having a climate debate or forum in, in August. I think that would give people like Jay Inslee more of a platform to discuss some of the really exciting policies that he's put out, but in a 30-second answer in the format in that debate, it's tough to do. Um, some of the bad stuff is that you could see that some of the Democrats just aren't as comfortable talking about climate as other issues like healthcare and immigration. And I thought some of the moderation was, you know, not great from Chuck Todd. He asked some, you know, questions that I didn't think were uh, as relevant as, as they could have been. What do you think, Shane? So my number one takeaway from the debates was that uh, President Trump will be in office for, for six more years. Um, I think that became pretty <laughs> oh, clear. No. Uh, and, and, and seriously, here's why. I think You've got 20 people up there, and they're racing as hard as they can to the left. And so they didn't have a lot of chance to create daylight between themselves. And I'll drill into climate in a minute. But they didn't have a lot of chance to create daylight between themselves unless you wanted to be seen as sort of the most progressive, most extreme, most left-leaning on any particular issue, whether it's immigration, health care, or something like that. And then climate got really short shrift. And so what some of the candidates were forced to do and I'm sympathetic with them for this reason, but they were forced to find a way to talk about an issue that's incredibly important without getting legitimate questions about it. And so they had to sort of, you know, reach out and pull it in. And so, you know, what's the greatest geopolitical threat to our country? Well, four of the 10 said climate. We've got, you know, a weird situation in Iran that could that could develop into a war. Who knows what's going on in North Korea? We have a crisis at our southern border. Now, I'm not saying that all those things are, are far more uh, important than climate. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying for the average American voter, not the left-leaning voter, you know, hard left, not the hard right-leaning voter, but for the average voter, they're concerned about those things. They're concerned about opioid addiction. They're concerned about a number of things, and they want to talk about climate. Polling shows that they do. But probably a discussion about climate could be more focused and not have to be put in that what is our greatest geopolitical threat uh, category. I also think that the candidates weren't given a fair opportunity to really flesh out their ideas. There's a big difference between a one-on-one Q&A where I ask you a question, then I ask someone else a question, then I ask someone else a question, and a debate. And I think when you let people talk to each other, tease out the details really sort of dig in on how am I different than you? How is what I view different than the way you view this? Uh, we would have gotten some better answers, and I think we would have gotten a better sense of where candidates stand on climate. And then finally, Brandon, I agree with you completely that I just think the moderators were awful. For example, you know, Chuck Todd led into a question about how a carbon tax is not a viable political solution. Now, that may be true, but I'm not sure how a carbon tax is any less viable, politically speaking. I'm not talking about practically speaking. Politically speaking, than many of the other ideas uh, that are being discussed. And so to just take it off the table as a moderator, by the way, not a candidate, seems a little bit odd. And then finally, I just sort of personally, and this has nothing to do with the candidate, started to think about how do we all do a better job communicating this? How do we find a way to relate to the average person that this is an important issue it deserves our attention. It deserves a thorough discussion, but it's really complicated. There's a lot of, you know, very, very deep science involved, but then there are also some political and economic components to it. And I, I think that watching that reminded me how difficult of a task we all have in communicating to people who don't work in climate and environmental policy, why this is important and what we can do about it. Yeah, again, on the moderator point, it was interesting to hear Chuck Todd say that uh, to emphasize the potential costs or difficulties of tackling climate action, but not even mention that these dangers, that these these risks from climate change also have a cost. It was very much presented in these like sort of short-term political terms. And, and Rachel Maddow also asked Jay Inslee, does your plan save Miami? It's just 
kind of like a small kind of pop question that doesn't really have any grounding in the way that climate change works or how these solutions are actually tied into so many different areas of politics. So I thought that the, yeah, the, the moderators didn't really do their homework in framing how to have a really substantive discussion on, on climate. It, it's kind of the worst of DC, you know, like Chuck Todd, you know, like channeling our, our co-sponsor Arnold Schwarzenegger could have asked about the air pollution that kills tens of thousands of Americans every single year, uh, but instead talked about like high-priced coastal property and what's going to happen there, and then looked very pleased with himself when he asked that question. So uh, I, um, I think they could have done a better job. Chuck Todd apparently spoke more than seven of the other candidates, so he, I don't know, he had a good night that night, I guess, for him. <laughs> Yeah, great night for Chuck Todd, except he humiliated himself. But but Brandon, what I would ask you, um, not a political question, but I've never really worked on the ground level on a presidential campaign. How much does the DNC work with the moderators? Is there any interaction insofar as like uh, Chairman Perez being able to, to educate these moderators on what they want to talk about? Because they just they seem to have less of a clue than the average person you could find on the street. And they're supposed to be training and becoming ready for this debate and teeing up the issues that are important to Democratic voters. And they just seem to be flying blind. Yeah, I mean, they can make recommendations, but it's ultimately uh, the the networks maintain control over what uh, the questions are going to be and such. So uh, but maybe we'll see a climate debate. Um, you know, I thought what the Sunrise did, uh, again, the activism is working. They're calling attention to this, and uh, sounds like the DNC has to revisit whether they're going to have a debate or not on climate. After what we saw the last few nights, and again, I'm not saying it was good or bad. I, I didn't love it, but but you might have. But don't you start to wonder what would a climate debate look like? Like, I'm really starting to think about if I'm a presidential candidate and I'm on a stage, and let's say there's only six other people. I know that's not what's going to happen, but just for the sake of a more rational debate, there's six other people. How do you use your time to provide insight that has value, but you also have to lay a lot of educational foundation? This is a really tough issue to discuss in a presidential debate. I, I think that would be the value of doing it. I mean, just again, uh, today, another report came out that said if we just just from the existing energy um, infrastructure on power plants, uh, just the commitments that we have and the existing stuff, we're going to blow past one and a half degrees Celsius and maybe two. That doesn't count transportation, industrial emissions, buildings, all that stuff. So you know, every week it feels like another report comes out that shows this is such a crisis. Um, and I'm not sure that the average American understands like how bad this is. So that platform might allow them to educate people about, you know, the, the challenge here and what we're dealing with and the impact uh, and the timing of it and the urgency, uh, but also distinguish themselves on, on the policy. I mean, Mayor Pete came out for carbon uh, dividend. You know, that's one way to tackle it. That's different than the Green New Deal uh, that Kamala endorsed. So it would be interesting to see her talk a little bit more about where, you know, she's at, some more details. And several of them have not put out their climate plans yet. So, you know, I'm interested to see where, where's Cory Booker on this. Um, I think, you know, the debates overall showed amongst the 20 that there's probably 10 candidates there that are really talented and have some good ideas. It'd be fun to see them um, debate this particular issue. And so as we understand it, the DNC, as you alluded to, Brandon, is officially revisiting whether or not to host this. And I think that stems from the Sunrise Movement camping out over those two debates. And I think even some candidates sending them snacks and things sort of cheering them on. 
But yeah, we still yet to see if climate change is an issue that candidates are just sort of checking a box on or if they're truly sincerely thinking about this as a priority if they were to take the White House. I kind of felt like even some candidates who haven't released plans kind of threw climate change in where they thought they could sort of, again, check a box on it. So I'm still kind of curious to see if Democrats are really taking this issue seriously, as seriously as the Sunrise Movement and others would like to see them take it. I will say, though, that um, it was interesting from my view coming from covering clean energy issues that that was central to several candidates' responses on industrial policy and on manufacturing and the future of the American economy. Um, Elizabeth Warren, she she pointed out that. You mentioned, Brandon, you know, the $23 trillion market opportunity for green products. But she wasn't the only one. Julian Castro mentioned renewables like solar, and he also talked about electric cars. Tim Ryan, Beto O'Rourke also did that. Tulosi Gabbard, so I thought, I thought that was interesting to see climate framed as part of economic policy. Did that stand out to you guys at all? Julie, it, it did to me, and, and not in a, in a good way. I got the sense that almost no one on the debate stage understood this issue at all or what it takes to combat it. It's easy to say, like, you know, jobs, job creation, and I say all those things. But you got to be able to dig a level deeper. And what I found was not that they were integrating it into economic policy as much as they were dodging and pivoting to something they were more comfortable talking about. Interesting. And what about the point about four of the 10 candidates saying that uh, the largest geopolitical threat facing the United States is climate change? Did that feel sincere to you guys? I mean, the Department of Defense, I think, agrees with that. <laughs> so yeah. I was happy to see them, them acknowledge that. Yeah, And as I mentioned earlier, it didn't feel sincere to me. It felt like there were several candidates who really wanted to talk about this issue. And, and, and they're right to want to talk about it. So I'm not knocking them. But I feel like they should have been given an opportunity to talk about it without having to use it as a response to that question. Because there's just so much going on in the world right now. And I think the average voter thinks that you know a potential war with Iran is a little bit more of a geopolitical threat than climate change. I'm not even saying that that's true. I'm just saying I think that's what the average voter thinks. And they should have been you know, able to have both discussions. They shouldn't have had to shoehorn the one into the other. Yeah. Before we turn the page here, Julia, I'm interested to hear your guys' thoughts on, do you think this is accidental? Or do you think the powers that be in the Democratic Party just don't think this is as much of a winning issue as the grassroots do, you know, as far as getting through the primary and then getting into the general election? I can't tell if they're ignoring it because... Uh, they won't, they really genuinely don't want to have anything issue specific going on. But they said, you know, it's going to be featured prominently. And it certainly wasn't. I don't even think I made it to the climate part of the debate. I had to watch it on YouTube later because it was like, you know, one hour and 45 minutes into a two hour debate. And I'm starting to wonder if it's intentional, if the DNC just feels like uh, the messaging on the Internet is not consistent with what they're what they're, you know, the voters are trying to attract want. And they're trying to sort of dodge the debate that the younger members of the party want to have. I, I just think that it's competing interests, uh, as I said earlier. I mean, the stuff that's happening at the border, I mean, I think that kids your age, Shane, will be reading about this at some point in their history books and be asking, like, what the hell was going on? Uh, and so I think, you know, it's understandable that that would take up some time. Healthcare also polls at the top, uh, you know, for Americans as a priority. And so I thought on the first night, the, the debate they had about Medicare uh, for all was particularly substantive and like uh, illuminating of the of where the candidates are at. I mean, there is a healthy debate to be had over what is the role of private health insurance in this or not. 
Uh, there are some differences amongst the candidates. I thought they all came off like very articulate and thoughtful. Uh, if you compare that to like what the Republican primary debates looked like a couple years ago, uh, very different, you know, scenario where they were like attacking each other with lewd, you know, comments and such. So I was proud to see that, uh, you know, the Democrats could have healthy debate on, on these very important issues. And um, I would like to see climate be more of a priority, but that's why I think it deserves its own debate. And just for the record, I believe Brandon meant when my uh, kids' age, uh, when they grow up, I wish I was young enough to get to read history books in in the next couple decades. Well, I thought that overall the first night of debate was more telling of where the Democratic Party wanted to go, or it felt like they were trying to come to some consensus uh, as a as a group. And the second night was more about attacks going after Trump or going after Biden. And I actually don't know which one's more productive. I, I kind of feel like the former, the first night, is where people you know want to see the candidates go, show us the money, like what are you really proposing here, and not just cheap shots. So I kind of felt after the second night a little more depressed about the state of politics. And frankly, I see your point, Shane, that like, you know, it doesn't feel like you that there's a real challenger to Trump right now on the Democratic side, just because there's so much fracturing. And, and some comments made that I think will divide Democrats ultimately. I disagree with that, Julia. I mean, the way that Kamala prosecuted you know, her case, I think she could stand toe-to-toe with Trump any day of the week. Uh, the way that Mayor Pete answered a very sensitive issue where he owned up to saying, look, I just couldn't get it done. I wish I had. I mean, I thought that was so refreshing to see in a politician to say, you know, I tried and I, I just couldn't get it done. And I'm going to keep trying. I mean, that's that, I really enjoyed seeing that. So I, there's a number of candidates that were on that stage that I would love to see take on Trump for sure. I couldn't disagree with Brandon Moore. I think, Julia, you're right. I think they created campaign ads for the Trump campaign. I think they provided a lot of good footage uh, in that regard. And then also, like with Kamala attacking uh, Joe Biden, I think she did herself huge favors with the donor class. I think if you're, you know, a, a Democratic billionaire who wants to know which direction to go. Biden looked weakened and hobbled. And so I get that. I don't think she did herself favors with blue collar Democratic voters that that, you know, the next candidate is going to need to take back from Donald Trump to win the White House. I think she looked mean spirited and attacked someone that they know, like and trust. And I'm not sure. I don't think she helped herself with voters, even if she did with donors. It's so tough because you know, the issues of race and then busing, which is such a personal story for Kamala Harris. And that's, you know, that was the context in which she she brought up these issues with Biden. You know, he previously at a campaign event earlier last month cited his ability to get things done, even with working with segregationist senators and and offered that as an example of sort of civility in Congress and sort of his, you know, can do abilities. And she said that, you know, is hurtful. She having been a child at the time of school desegregation and was just the second class to integrate in public schools in Berkeley, California, and school buses themselves weren't really the controversy at the time, as I understand it. It's really the end of segregation that sparked opposition, which then made busing a hot political issue. Nonetheless, you know, this is not my area of focus. I bring it up because I think it speaks to a larger issue around working across the aisle and the way that Biden framed his record on bipartisanship and specifically on race issues as well. There's sort of two pieces to this. For one, I was listening to other commentators and they pointed out that while this is undoubtedly an important issue and very personal to many people, 
to the mainstream voter and to whatever extent maybe the you know white middle class voter uh, matters, uh, the issue of busing just doesn't really resonate. It's not really on their radar. So did this exchange help or hurt party cohesion overall? That's that's something to think about. Then secondly, is there room for a, a Democratic leader like Biden? Is there room for reaching across the aisle in today's political climate? Or is it just that he did not do a good job answering this specific question? He did not do a good job of framing his past work. He sort of talked about working with segregationists in a kind of fond way, which turned a lot of people off. So is it just this issue in which he struggled? Or is there a broader mood right now where Democrats are just fed up with bipartisanship? I honestly don't know where the Democratic Party stands on this. I think a lot of people are frustrated with this reach across the aisle way of operating, haven't seen it work. Uh, Mitch McConnell in the Senate has done an excellent job of blocking action. So they say, forget it. We want a Kamala Harris, someone who's willing to call people out. Uh, but is that a dangerous place to go? I don't know. What do you guys think? First, just on Joe Biden, I'll do the obligatory, like, you know, former Obama administration uh, official. It, it, it just we all love uh, Joe Biden. He was an amazing person to work with, amazing public servant, um, close to the family. But I think there's a concern out there that, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Any Given Sunday. It's the Oliver Stone movie about football. And uh, Dennis Quaid plays this like aging quarterback, Cap Rooney. And like, uh, everybody likes him. And he was a great football player. But the game, you know, kind of passed him by. And there's this young quarterback, you know, played by Jamie Foxx, Stephen Willie Beeman. And he's running quarterback and plays the game in a new way. And I think there's a concern out there that Joe Biden could be like the Cap Rooney, uh, where everybody loves him. But uh, is, the, is the game just sort of passing him by? Uh, I think there's, you know, he had some tough moments in that debate. It'll be interesting to see what happens going forward. You know, on the particular, like, what gets the, the crux of our show, I think that's, you know, something that is highly relevant because if you look, I, I, I get encouraged every week by what Shane says and there's certain things we can point out. But if you look at what the Republicans are actually doing, see what happened at the G20 and, and the climate negotiations in Bonn, Germany in the last week. I mean, we have the Republican administration siding with Saudi Arabia and Iran in like trying to denigrate the science and discredit it uh, and carve outs to, you know, uh, not acknowledge what's happening with climate. That's really dangerous stuff. You have the Trump administration now burying climate science from the USDA, the Department of Agriculture. Uh, there was a bill in the Congress to uh, prevent EPA from implementing the endangerment finding, which is the finding that greenhouse gas emissions threaten human health. On that bill to prevent them from implementing it, a vast majority of the Republicans voted for it. So if you look at what's happening in, this, in these votes in the states, too, where we're getting progress, where we're getting climate legislation passed in states like Maryland, Washington, New York, Colorado, there's very little or no Republican support in those bills. And so I think it's a fair question to ask, like, you know, who are we supposed to be working with? Yeah, I mean, I've gotten tired of sort of defending myself on that question, and I understand your frustration. I guess what I would say is I do understand why a given administration, maybe the Trump administration, would say, hey, this isn't going to be our top priority. We have other things we want to do. I do get that. I don't get why they would actively try to sort of inhibit um, action that could be you know, helpful to solving climate change. I don't get why there would be specific efforts to remove language uh, that discusses climate change from communique and international organizations. I, I think, you know, from my perspective, 
rather than doing what I normally do and defend sort of the, the importance of bipartisan work, what I would say is that I don't think we're any closer to where we need to be. And so maybe you're right. Maybe Republicans aren't being helpful at all. But I don't think making it a more divisive issue gets us any closer. So my goal, rather than to argue about whether or not we should be bipartisan, is just to keep doing what I do and keep trying to message it and communicate it and finding like-minded people, younger voters, Republican voters. Shoot, I don't care if they're older voters, they're Republican voters who want to talk about this, who want to put it out there. Politicians will always follow the voting base. The tail has to wag the dog. There's no way around it. You can't keep your job if you're not pleasing your voters. So what I think is important now is to keep pushing out the message. You know, write op-eds, talk to your you know local community, show up at town halls, do this podcast, do everything you have to do to get people, and I mean Republican voters, I don't mean elected Republicans, excited about this issue or at least worried about it enough to want to solve it, and that's how we're going to get it done. So unfortunately, it is going to take longer than just putting a bill on the House and Senate floor next week, but but the effort's got to be there because the alternative is nothing. And so I'm going to keep pushing that direction, and I understand your frustration with a lot of the elected Republicans right now. I guess, Brandon, I'm just curious to put it to you point blank. Do you think that a middle-of-the-road Democratic candidate is going to win the primary? Someone who, who like a Biden, who champions reaching across the aisle? <laughs> um, I mean, so much can happen. And I was so wrong about the 2016 election. So I'm like shell shocked from making uh, predictions. Uh, <laughs> I used to be good at it, I thought. And then I'm really scarred because <laughs> I did not see Donald Trump winning the primary or the general. Uh, but I'm, if you had asked me today, I don't think so. I do think it, it's going to be, uh, I think there's a generational shift happening. Um, I think we're sort of in you know, a madman type moment where if you watch that show, you know, Don Draper, like the, the whole show is about the world, like passing this guy by. Uh, and I think, um, that's happening. And I, I, I would be surprised if it's somebody like that. I think that there's a lot of energy in the democratic party, the activists, and I, I don't, I don't think it'll be a middle of the road candidate. You know, I, I used to say that the only democratic candidate that could possibly beat president Trump would be Joe Biden. Uh, after the last two weeks, I'm pretty certain Joe Biden cannot beat President Trump. And so I'm honestly not sure who in the field could. And it'll be interesting to watch this unfold. Yeah, I mean, I try to be mindful that uh, I agree with lots of people that say the Twitterverse isn't real life. I 100% agree with that. But also like the DC establishment isn't either. And so uh, it's going to be, I can't wait to watch this unfold. You know, who knows what will happen over the next uh, year, but it's going to be, I, I, I think it, it will be exciting. I can't wait to keep discussing it with you guys. Um, I really feel like I, you know, continue to learn from both of you when we talk about these things. So it's going to be great. Well, I hate to do this to you, but before we wrap this segment, are you ready yet to concede that there is a 0% chance Beto O'Rourke can be president of the United States? Or are you still hanging on to hope that there's going to be some lightning in a bottle moment? Hanging on to hope, you know, he, I'm not saying I, he's my candidate, but just to remind everybody, I was, you know, my experience on the Obama campaign, you know, I joined it in very early uh, 2007, March of 07. I mean, we were considered dead in the summer. It was horrible. Early fall, those first couple of debates, Obama was 
many of the pundits and the critics, you know, thought he was not good at all. It took him a while to find his footing. Um, in many of the town halls that we did in New Hampshire, many of the people reacted by saying, where's that guy from 2004? Uh, sometimes it takes that transition from, you know, um, senator to national candidate can be a little more challenging. Uh, and I think, you know, Beto's trying to find his voice, find his footing, uh, but he could. And in those small states like New Hampshire and Iowa, you can catch fire very quickly, uh, you know, at the end. That's what happened to us. So just to be clear, senator to national candidate is very different than House member to failed Senate candidate to national candidate. <laughs> <laughs> I should have said Congress, uh, member of Congress, uh, but um, we'll see. You know, I think there's a scenario where, you know, he never catches fire, but I think there's a scenario where come November and December, um, when voters are really starting to pay attention, he, we, he's proven that he can be a very good retail campaigner. He's proven that he can inspire people uh, and motivate them and get independents to vote uh, for him. Those are important characteristics in Iowa and New Hampshire. All right, we'll have to leave it there in the first round of Democratic primary debates. As we know, there'll be plenty more to discuss. And, you know, in some ways, with 20 candidates on stage um, and still six months away from the first primary, these first debates may not actually end up mattering all that much. So we'll just have to see. And so stay tuned. Moving now to the Northwest. Politics in Oregon were thrown into chaos after Republican legislators fled the state last month to resist voting on a climate change bill that would reduce greenhouse gas emissions over time. Governor Kate Brown, a Democrat, ordered the state police to bring these lawmakers home. Then right-wing militia groups vowed to defend them, raising the prospect of a violent confrontation. So this was a crazy back and forth, and ultimately the bill died. It sounded as though the Democrats had actually lost the votes on their side to pass this legislation. But since then, we know it may come back on the table. Governor Brown seems committed to it. But as it currently stands, the legislative session is almost over, and the bill's future remains unclear. So this is exactly the kind of instance I think a lot of Democrats point to uh, when they say that Republicans are just never going to act in good faith on climate change. So, Brandon, I guess I want to go to you first. What did you think of this and what are you hearing from Democrats? It's so crazy. You know, every year um, for the last several years, I run in this race, a famous race in Oregon called Hood to Coast. You run from like the top of Mount Hood all the way to the oceans, 200 miles. It's a relay race. I run it with all my Obama buddies. Um, you basically run three different segments of seven miles each. Uh, it's a good time. You hang out in the van for 24 straight hours. I am training hard because, you know, as a progressive climate activist going to Oregon next month, like, I don't know if I got to run real fast from these guys, these militia guys, <laughs> you know, oh, it's, I don't understand. I'm curious <laughs> what Shane thinks. I mean, I'm concerned that the Democrats seem to, it seemed like it was a done deal to pass cap and trade, you know, which we've talked about as a Republican, was originally a Republican policy. Uh, and so, you know, guys like George Pataki, the former governor of New York, used to support it. You know, Massachusetts Mitt Romney, when he was governor, supported it. Our co-sponsor, Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, Republican governor of California, got it done here. Um, this isn't a crazy policy. And, you know, they took crazy actions to, you know, walk out. There's a Republican senator who threatened to shoot, you know, the state police if they came after him. I don't know what is going on in Oregon. Maybe Shane can tell us. No, I don't know either. I mean, the hyperbole on both sides drives me nuts. So let's put that in one. I'm not blaming both sides for this fiasco, by the way, just the hyperbole. 
The Republican legislators out there, I really don't understand this. We had someone on Twitter, you know, ask about this and I responded, yeah, they should be arrested. And then I sort of thought, man, I shouldn't have said that. And I was like, you know what? Like, yeah, I should have, because this is crazy. Like, first of all, they have to do their jobs, right? They have to do their jobs and elections have consequences. And one of the things I hate so much about House Democrats in Washington right now is that they refuse to accept that Republicans won the Senate. They refuse to accept that Donald Trump won the White House. And, and it's like, come on, you lost. Elections have consequences. Do the best you can with the situation you're in and live to fight another day. And now these Republican legislators in Oregon won't do that. They're basically saying, you know, we didn't get exactly what we wanted. So we're going to take our ball and go home. We're going to abdicate our public responsibility. We're going to abdicate our voters' trust and leave the state. And then one of the most annoying things was trying to explain it to us as if we're all idiots. Uh, one of the senators said, well, this is what quorums are for. We're doing our job. You know, quorums are to ensure that you don't have to take shitty votes. I'm exaggerating, but that's basically what he said. It's like, no, a quorum is a thing that exists so I don't get a bunch of my buddies in the middle of the night and go pass a bill without telling the opposition party. It's not something that exists so that you can hold a party hostage even when they kicked your ass at the ballot box. So I think this is crazy. They've got a job to do. And if you want to govern, if you actually want to be in control and you don't want to be in a super minority, you got to win elections. And I honestly think it's going to be increasingly difficult to win win elections if you take your ball and go home every time you don't get what you want. So I think this is nuts. You know, I'm actually mostly supportive uh, of the Oregon legislation, but it wouldn't matter if I supported it or not. Losing sucks. If you want to win, come up with better ideas and convince the voters that you're acting in their best interest. Leaving the state. I mean, could you imagine if a, if a bunch of U.S. congressmen left the country, fled to Mexico because they were scared of a shitty vote? I mean, this is crazy to me. Yeah. And what's actually disappointing I don't know if it was intentional or not was that the Oregon GOP Twitter account actually tweeted out an incorrect photo showing uh, or claiming that this was a heavily armed militia uh, laying siege on the Capitol over the climate bill when it was just a typical protest photo that they misused that just added fuel to the fire and I'm not even quite clear on exactly how uh, near that threat was, but nonetheless, it had its intended effect of, of stalling and shutting down the political process, which just seems very disturbing. Well, the threat was big enough, Julia, where they had to shut down the state capitol. So right. Yes, exactly. You don't take those lightly, regardless. Yeah. I mean, that I think is just, yeah, really just disappointing. Oh, yeah. And getting off the craziness of, of that, you know, another thing that drove me nuts is that I think a lot of the Republican arguments that I've made my entire life that I believe, by the way, against a lot of big government programs is even if I agree with the goal of the program, I don't think a one size fits all is always the case. I know climate's a different kind of challenge, but for the most part, I hate when the federal government tries to seize, you know, control of things that should be within a state's purview. In this case, the state of Oregon made a decision, you know, absent federal action, the state of Oregon made a decision. That is a truly conservative thing to do. And so to just walk away from that seems just inconsistent, if nothing else. There was a senator, one of the ones who, who left the state, his name's Tim Knopp. Uh, he represents uh, Bend, Oregon. He told NPR that actually his party in the state uh, wants to reduce emissions. They have embraced this. He just thought that this particular bill was the most expensive and complicated way of doing it and hated that the Democrats didn't let them introduce more amendments. So I always thought that was confusing, uh, you know, to say that you embrace climate solutions, but to put your foot down over not getting the amendments that you wanted, that just seems to not quite make sense. You know, cap and trade is something that we have in California. The economy is doing pretty good here. 
We also have it in the Northeast in this country. There are several states, you know, that have joined a regional cap and trade, you know, compact. Those states are doing well economically. China has cap and trade. I mean, you know, this notion that it's so expensive is going to kill all these jobs is just is just a myth. And I hope the Democrats don't, you know, sort of fold to this type of, you know, violence because it could set a bad precedent where if people think it's that those sort of tactics work. We're going to walk out. We're going to like, you know, these militias are going to, you know, be successful. And by the way, militias are just terrorist groups. That's just, you know, another domestic uh, terrorist the branding group. is off. Yeah, they're domestic terrorist groups. They got to call it for what it is. I, if those tactics work here, I'm concerned that it would happen in other states. And I don't want to see that. The, the senator's concern that you mentioned a little bit ago, Julia, those are completely valid and legitimate concerns. Um, but not in this instance. And it's because if you want a seat at the table, bring your best ideas. The Democrats will bring their best ideas and you can probably find a way to trade votes and get something done. But what you can't do is bring no ideas, ignore the problem. And then when the opposition party acts, you know, hold them hostage. So I agree with him. There should be debate. There should be amendments. There should be a system that everyone agrees with. But that's not a fair way to approach it after the fact. That's something you do in good faith prior. And I know that, you know, I probably come off as as less Republican than I am just because of my frustration with with what's going on in Oregon and some of the other stuff I'm seeing. But let me remind all our listeners, in my opinion, watching those two debates last week made me more conservative and more Republican than ever. I love our party and I hate almost everything the progressive left stands for. But that doesn't mean that we have to act irresponsibly. It doesn't mean we have to revert to hyperbole. And it certainly doesn't mean that we abdicate our responsibility as public servants if we're given the privilege of being elected. Shane, what really turned you off in the debates? What, 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 it, uh, what was at the top of your list that they were talking about? The healthcare discussion, for example, for me, seemed so far away from what a reasonable discussion about healthcare should look like. I mean, the idea to me that the federal government would seize the healthcare system, even when, you know, 80% of Americans do have a plan they like, it's the same thing we said about Obamacare. Let's talk about the 20% who are unhappy. Let's leave the 80%, you know, who are happy alone. I think the immigration debate was a little bit strange. I know what's going on at our southern border right now is awful for so many people for so many reasons, but we have laws. And you don't just say because too many people are breaking our laws, we should just strike the law. You got to be more thoughtful about how you deal with the problems our country is facing. And that kind of stuff drives me crazy to no end. I also know there are a lot of Americans who are suffering, who don't have health care, who don't have a job, who are addicted to opioids. And they're talking about, you know, let's make sure that we make, uh, you know, illegal immigrants get unlimited access to free health care. Now, I have nothing wrong with immigrants, no problem at all. But those are not the issues that most Americans sit at the dinner table and worry about. They want to know how they're going to pay their bills, how they're going to feed their kids, how they're going to get their friend off opioids, how they're going to pay, you know, get themselves access to health care. That's what you got to focus on. And that's what I think Republicans have always traditionally done. And that's what I want to see them continue to do. Well, we find ourselves back at the debate, but we'll have to leave it there uh, and move now to our final segment of the show. And now it's time for If You Can't Say Something Nice, where our Democrat and Republican co-hosts have to say something pleasant or redeeming about the opposing political party. Uh, Shane, you just had a tirade. Uh, do you want to continue the rant? <laughs> Yeah, sure. So I actually have something very nice to say about um, John Delaney from the debate. I actually want to steal this. I want to take it. Um, He said, we should be the party that keeps what's working, but fixes what's broken. That sounds like a very simple statement. But to me, it was actually the most insightful thing I've heard. And not just in the debates, but in politics in probably like five years, because 
every time there's a movement, everyone says, let's tear it down and, and start over. The Tea Party, you know, wanted to start over and have a much more conservative federal government. I think, you know, the progressive left is doing that now. But why not? Why not just say, let's see what's working for people and just leave that be. Let's just sort of tinker on the edges to fix the things that aren't working. I think, you know, taking that bite-sized approach would be something that all Americans would appreciate. And I just appreciated hearing him say that on a national stage. Hey, Shane, if you'd like to be um, president of Republicans for Delaney, I'm sure I could hook you up with those guys, make that happen. What do you think? I'm going to take a pass, but I do appreciate y'all. You're always looking to help me out, and that's why we're such good friends. I appreciate that. That's so nice. Brandon, what do you got? My say something nice is that two dozen Republican House members, mostly representing you know coastal states, joined uh, Democratic counterparts this week in voting to effectively ban offshore oil and gas drilling uh, in areas like the Pacific and Atlantic, which near and dear to us here in California. So I thought that was really great to see some true bipartisanship. And with that, it's time to sign off from the True North Strong and Free up in Canada here. I'm off next week in Portugal, so I won't see you guys, but we'll be back online the following week. This is Political Climate. You can find us on Twitter at poly underscore climate. And remember, you can subscribe to Political Climate on pretty much any podcasting platform, including Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn. So be sure to do that. And if you like it, leave us a review. Thanks again, as always. I'm about to watch my girl Alex Morgan run shit right now. That's right. Who's that? You're such a Canadian. Oh, God, Julia. <laughs> <laughs>